Well, good morning. If you want to find your way back to your seat, we'll get started with the message this morning. So this morning we're starting this new series. It's called Surprised by Christmas. And uh, now I'm sure that you all were, had some good surprises, some good holiday parties. You already probably participated in some of those family times where you know everybody shows up and you get to eat together and you get to do all that stuff together and that's kind of fun. And I know that you probably have some more to come, right? Like some more family get-togethers. I know um, my family, one of the things that happens in my dad's actually extended family is they do this thing that's kind of like if people do the wrong thing at some point in our extended family, they get banished. And so like they're not allowed to come to any family holiday parties anymore for a certain amount of time. I don't know what the real rules are here, but I, I've just noticed that this has happened. I haven't been on the banished side yet. So formerly that, fortunately, Jesus redeemed some of that in my immediate family, and so I haven't been banished. But we went to one the other year, and some of the banished people were back, and they hadn't been there in years, and so we were, we were kind of interested in what happened. Susie and I were surprised. We're like, oh, wow, they're back. It's nice to see them again. So we caught up with them, and then, of course, I caught up with my parents. They're like, hey, what's the lowdown? Like, what, you know, what, what happened that they won their way back in? Like, do they have to pay somebody off? How, do you, how does this happen? Just in case I ever get banished, I'd like to know how you get yourself back in. But So we were surprised, you know, that unexpected moment. You're like, huh didn't expect to see them there. And sometimes we think um, the same thing about Christmas. We think we know what Christmas is all about, and we kind of have expectations about what that's about and who should be in it and what it's, you know. And we, we, you know, like you all showing up today, and you know what Christmas is about, right? The guy in the red suit, right? The dude in the red suit with the reindeer. That's what Christmas is all about. No, I know you don't know. I know you know that's not what Christmas is about. It's about shopping and Black Friday and all the deals you can get. No, like, no, I know you, you came and you thought, well, it's about Jesus, right? Like, oh, no, I know Christmas story. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and his birth. But what's really interesting and what we're going to talk about today is the interesting way that the gospel writers actually approach it. And so this morning, even if you look in your, what we usually have is an outline for you. It's that big red piece of paper in your program guide. It'll help you follow along this morning, but if you come here regularly, you know that you're used to filling in blanks. I just wanted to let you know there's a big right-hand side that's all blank that you can fill in, and that's your notes this morning because we're going to approach this a little different way to approach these stories all month long. And um, on that blank side, you can take notes, or if you just want to doodle a picture of me or the person next to you, that's okay too, okay? So whatever you want to do there is fine, but this morning, we're going to look at these Gospels. Now, when you look at the Gospels and the story of Jesus... There are four books, four letters that have been put into the Bible, um, written by people that were around Jesus, studied his life, or with Jesus. And of those four, do you know how many that actually record the birth of Jesus? Two, right? And most of us really know one of them well because Charlie Brown tells it every year on his special, right? So we know the story from Luke about the shepherds and the angels singing and the cute little baby with the petting zoo around him and it all looks so special and that's the one we know. But in Matthew, Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And what's interesting is that he does not start with the birth of Jesus. He starts with a genealogy the lineage of Jesus. This is what he starts just naming people in the lineage. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, he starts by saying, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac of Jacob, and Jacob of Judah. And he goes on and on through this chapter. And you go, why why would you start 
the story of Jesus with all of these names. I mean, there's just a long list. Of, why would you do that? Well, Matthew is actually writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Okay, So the first question that Matthew wants to answer to his Jewish brothers is, did Jesus really come from the legal lineage that says he can be the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior? See, there were all these prophecies 2,000 years ago, 800 years ago, 500 years ago that said that he would come from Abraham, that he would come from Isaac, that he would be a descendant of King David. And so all the names you see here are Matthew's way of answering this question to his Jewish readers. Like, is Jesus legit? Could he really be the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior? So this is the way Matthew starts. But when you read his genealogy, it's, it's not what you expect. I mean, if you're a Jewish reader reading it, and you know that this whole thing is set up to get you to the point of going, oh, okay, you answered my question. Jesus is really from this Jewish heritage. He comes from this long background. He's fulfilled all these prophecies. He is legally from the line of David. This guy could be legitimately the Messiah. If this is what you're trying to prove. Why in the world are there women in this story that when primarily when you're talking about a legal genealogy in that day, it would have just listed the men. I mean, in a male-dominated culture, that's the way it was written. Yet Matthew throws in all these women's names. So they, they kind of pop out. It's very strange that they're in there. And then on top of that, as you begin and you know what's the people in this story, you begin to realize, okay, you just gave us all, all the lineage of Jesus, and you put people in here that, well, I don't expect to find in here at all. Like I, I don't, you know when you go out to Ancestry.com and you look at your history? Right, and you want to go out, and you're like, "Oh, look, I'm a, I'm related to, to Queen Elizabeth, and I'm related to like somebody else famous." But then you find out that you're related to that person that you know, Uncle Eddie, that no one wants to know about. You're like, "Can we just like, like pretend that that's not there?" Right? These kind of people are the people that we begin to find in this story. And so, as Matthew begins to write in this genealogy, in in chapter one, verse three, it says, "Judah." Picks up with Judah, and Judah was Jacob's son. And so if you know anything about Jacob's story, Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel eventually through Joseph's descendants. So we have these 12 sons that become, come to Judah, and Judas, Judah was a very popular one. And so here's Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you're a Jewish reader and you get to the name Tamar, you go, whoa. What is Tamar doing in this story? Because we'll, we'll actually talk about her story next week, and we won't even read all the scriptures that Tamar has in her story next week because some of them are just, well, they're not things that you read about in a mixed audience in church. Like, they're just, that's the kind of story that Tamar had in her life. And so not all of it was her fault, but there were things that she did, things that happened in her story that you're like, whoa. So any Jewish reader reads that and goes, What's Tamar doing in this story? And it goes on to say, it goes through verse 3, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Manimadab. And the reason I'm reading this really fast is because I don't really know how to pronounce any of these people's names. And Anabadab was the father of Nashon, Nashon was the father of Salmon. And then in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, again, if you're a Jewish reader, you know Rahab. Her name sticks out. She was a significant figure in the story of Israel 
and, her, and Israel's history, but you also know that she has a nickname. You also know that she had a profession. She was a prostitute. And so you read the story, you go, why, why is she in the story? I mean, this is Jesus' lineage. Why are you mentioning? You don't have to mention her name. Why is she there? It goes on to say that Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, if you are a Jewish person answering a Jewish person's question about the Jewish Messiah, why do you bring up Ruth, who is not even Jewish? She has a good story, but she's not even Jewish. Why is she in the story? Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. There's our hook up to the line of King David who was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, now, if you don't know much about the story of King David, what's interesting here is like she says, you notice the way he says that whose mother had been Uriah's wife? This refers to a part of David's story which is not a good part of David's story at all. It is the most shameful part of David's entire leading as king. It includes adultery and murder. And And you notice that Matthew can't even bring himself to write Bathsheba's name in the story because there's such shame associated in the past. So he just puts whose mother was Uriah's wife because David murdered Uriah and stole his wife. Why would you put that in Jesus' lineage story to show that he's the Messiah? Why all the distractions? In the genealogy. Wow, how do we come to that? And so we find ourselves in Matthew's story at an intriguing part, an interesting part to go, huh, why are these distractions? Why did Matthew put all these people in this story? You see, Matthew spent three years with Jesus. And he knew the kind of man that Jesus was. And he knew that Jesus knew the kind of man that he was. And I believe that Matthew knew that these people were not just part of Jesus' story. They were going to be the point of the story that Matthew was about to tell about Jesus. The reason they're in the story is because they're the point of the story. That Jesus didn't just come for sinners. There was a long line of sinners in his history that brought him up to this point that he came to rescue and has always been about that. And so we have this story. And it's, it's stranger still that this, all these people would be in the story because when you write us in ancient history, when you wrote a story like this, you wrote a lineage, you wrote someone's biography, you just wrote the good stuff. And what makes this story so unique is that it doesn't include just the good stuff. Historians would often write stories for kings and they would write all these great things about them. They leave out all the sketchy parts. But over the next month, we're going to study the sketchy parts because they're in the story because they're the point of the story. The point of what Jesus came to help us through, to help us understand, to surprise us with. And so as we read each of these, go through each of these characters, I want you to really engage in that story because it's Matthew's story. I mean, that's the reason he wrote the genealogy the way he did was because it's his story. So, Here's what I'd like to do for a minute. I'd like to now fast forward a little bit. We, we've looked at the genealogy. We're going to talk about some of those characters this month. But I want to fast forward to this moment when Matthew writes 
about the moment he met Jesus. And it's found in Matthew chapter 9. And uh, it's just some, some little, little history, a little background for what's going on in this moment when he, before he meets Jesus. Jesus comes to this place called Capernaum. And Jesus is there, and everybody is checking out Jesus. They all want to know, who is this guy? Like, who is this Jesus who, like, he's been doing all this stuff, but we really want to know who he is, what is he about? And so they bring this guy to him, and he's paralyzed. And Jesus looks at this guy in the midst of this crowd, and there's religious leaders there called Pharisees. Everyone's there, and he looks at this guy, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this guy didn't come to get his sins forgiven. He's paralyzed, right? He came because he wanted to walk. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the audience goes, and the religious leaders take this big, they're like, wait, 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 wait a second. You, you can't forgive sins. That's what God does. You don't get to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus in that moment looks at all the whole audience so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He tells the guy, get your mat and walk. Instantly, he is healed. And everybody, just just imagine the hush that goes over the place as everybody steps back and then starts to talk. He really does have the authority. Who is this man that he has the authority to forgive sins, to heal people? Who is this guy? Now, I don't know if Matthew was in the crowd that day. That was where he was from, but I don't know if he was in the crowd that day, but I... I can almost guarantee that he heard the story. The day when Jesus met him, he knew the story of what Jesus did and what he was capable of. And so in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we find Jesus walking up and seeing Matthew. And starting in verse 9, it says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Okay, so let's just stop for a second. We need to know something about this whole sitting at a tax collector's booth. We often think of like the tax collectors, this person maybe you write a check to and you send it to them, they get paid by the government and whatever. But you need to understand how the tax collection system worked in Rome. In Rome, they had to collect taxes, right? But they conquered all these nations. And what they found out was when they tried to get their own citizens to collect taxes, it didn't work very well. So what they do is they'd get a citizen, uh, an ethnicity, a person of that own country origin to collect taxes for them. And the way they do that is say, you can buy in to be a tax collector, and here's the way it'll work. You collect the taxes we want, but you can charge any amount you want. All you need to do is give us what we're asking for, and we authorize you to collect any amount you like. So if you're a tax collector, you get to charge any amount you want, skim off the top, and then give Rome what they need. Now, you can imagine how popular this makes you, right? You're, first of all, you're living in a country that has been overtaken by Rome. And now you're a bit of a trader collecting for Rome. And you're not just collecting for Rome, you're collecting for yourself and getting rich off of people. So you can imagine why when, the, when all through the Gospels, when it talks about tax collectors, it talks about sinners, there's sinners, and then there's tax collectors. And these are two different categories, right? There's sinners and then there's tax collectors. And so this is Matthew's life. And so when they come, when Jesus and his disciples are approaching him, Matthew is looking, and he knows who Jesus is. And he's probably wondering, what's he going to say to them? Why is he coming over here? What is going to happen? And I'm picturing his disciples. You know, Peter can never keep his mouth shut. 
So I'm picturing Peter already working up some good sarcasm before he gets there. Like, what am I going to say to this guy? I'm going to really, I'm gonna, what are we going to give it to this guy for, you know? And he's, he's already working up, and they're already, they're already sneering at Matthew as they approach him, thinking, what's Jesus going to say to the tax collector? Verse 9, Jesus says, Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth, and Jesus says, follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus comes over to Matthew and he says, Matthew, why don't you hang out with us for a while today? Like, why don't you come and just, just come and be with us for a while? Matthew's like, well, what are we going to do? Well, why don't we go over to your house? What? Well, why don't we go over to your house? And so Matthew turns around and tells probably the other people that work for him or whatever, like, hey, you guys take care of business. I'm going to my house. He says, what are we going to do in my house? Why don't you have some people over? Why don't you invite your friends over to your house? And Matthew's thinking, um, I, don't think you, I don't think you know who my friends are, okay? I don't have friends that are Pharisees because, I'm a, see, I'm a, I'm a tax collector. So, like, I'm lucky if I even get into the sinner group. I'm lucky if they'll even come to my house. Like, oh, what are you doing? And Matt, Jesus says, why don't, why don't we go over to your house? Why don't we just have a party over there today? I'd just like to get to know you. Follow me. So, verse 10 while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collector, collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Sat together, they got to know each other. And then in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, okay, now you notice the Pharisees weren't really invited to the party, right? That Matthew, they weren't on Matthew's invitation list, so they're actually outside the party probably a little ticked off that they're not invited to the party, realizing that Jesus is on the inside with all of these other people, and they're not invited, and this is what the Pharisees said. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They flagged down his disciples, and they're like, why is he spending all of his time with all of those people? Why be there with all of those people when he could be here with us? What is he up with him? And in that moment, I think Matthew probably went through his head. Matthew was like, all kind of things like going through Matthew's head. Like, what, what's Jesus going to say? How is Jesus going to respond to these guys in the midst of everything? Because I, I imagine the disciples were trying to answer his question. And this is what Jesus says in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And you might think, well, that's a little insulting to Matthew, right? Like, what is he going to do with that? But No, you know as well as I do that when you feel far from God, you already know that you're far from God. And what Matthew was most surprised at was that Jesus would even come to his tax collector booth and say, can we go have a party at your house today? He was already shocked by that so that Jesus would look at the Pharisees and say, I came for these people, not for you wasn't insulting at all. It was welcoming. It meant that Jesus wanted to spend time with him. It meant that that's what Jesus was all about. And he, he follows it up with this comment, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He calls the Pharisees back to the Old Testament, these religious people that would have known the Old Testament really well. He calls them back to the statement, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I don't desire all your righteous work, all that good stuff that you're doing to try to make yourself look good, to try to win yourself to God. I don't desire that stuff. I desire mercy. I desire 
to give mercy to others. That's what I'm all about. That's why I'm here in this place. In other words, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, I haven't come for those who think they have it all together. I've come for those who realized that they don't. They don't have it all together. That they need something more than they have right now. And for Matthew, the reason he writes the genealogy the way he does, the reason he starts the genealogy and he puts these characters in the genealogy is because he's reflecting off of his first experience with Jesus when he meets Jesus and realizes that the reason those people are in their genealogy, it's the same reason when he spent time with Jesus, is that they're not just part of the story, the point of the story. The reason Jesus came was for those very people. It was for people like Matthew. And those exceptions in the genealogy, those people that we go, oh my, I can't believe they're in the genealogy, those were Matthew's people. Those were the people he related to and said, I, I recognize that. I am one of those people. This is the point of the story. Now, for a long time, for ages, in fact, people have approached God this way. They wanted to come to God and you Here's what I've done, God. Here's, look, I'm good enough. Look, see, see to all the things I've done. This, is no, this was normal behavior. This is the way the Pharisees approached God. This is the way people approached God. And some people would never approach God. They'd be like, oh, I'm not getting near that stool. You don't know what I've done. And people still today approach God. They lean all their weight onto what I've done. Here's what I've done, God. Am I good enough? Can I be in your presence? Can I feel accepted by you? And the whole point of this series is to help you to move to a new place. Because Jesus came because he wanted people to understand, I have changed the rules. I have changed the rules. I came so that you would know that light is going to penetrate the darkness. That grace is going to break the rules of all the things that you have to do. That forgiveness is going to penetrate this world that's filled with condemnation. Instead of basing your life this way, you're going to be able to base it on the fact that I have been given authority to forgive. But we all are drawn back here. And when we sit in this stool, many of us feel different things. Some of us approach it and go, hey, I'm pretty religious. I think I'm doing all right. Yet deep down in our soul we go, but am I doing all right enough? Will it ever be quite enough? And even in many of my years now following Jesus, I mean, even as a pastor, you know, I realize that I, I feel myself drawn to the stool and I feel I, I got to run from it. And I, and I know that when I'm sitting on this stool, it's not going to be enough. Now, this, week, um, this week I was actually sick. I had a sore throat. You know, that's like the thing that... The, the best thing that you could possibly have Thanksgiving week, right? A sore throat, you can't swallow, I had this fever. And, you know, some of you probably, some of you know people in your family who are like, when they're sick, you know, you know the needy people who are like, you know, you know who they are in your family. Like they whine a lot and you have to help them. They're always like that. You know that person in your family. And then there's the push it through person like, no, I'm not sick. I haven't, this is my father-in-law. I haven't been sick in 75 years. And so, He's, you know, he hasn't been sick from before he was born, okay? And so, so then there's 
people like me, and I'm just, I'm just mean when I'm sick, okay? Like, I don't, I don't like, I was resentful that I had a sore throat on Thanksgiving, and I get impatient, and so I just kind of, I kind of try to resign myself to my room, because I don't feel like I'm even fit to be around. And my, my children don't really, even though I try to explain this to them, they, they're teenagers, and so they just still think it's funny to push my buttons and have me snap, and then they kind of giggle under their breath about me snapping, and, but See, for me, I, I come here and I go, God, all this time, and I, I can't stand on any of this. Still, through all these years, still can't stand on any of this. The goal of the series is that you will move this direction, that you'll stop trying to live here. You'll tra- stop trying to live in this place of all the things you've done or all the things you haven't done. Maybe there's a lot of things you haven't done. Whether you're a religious person or you're a person who just feels like, dude, I don't even, I thought church was Denny's on Sunday morning. They had pancakes because that's all the places we went on Sunday morning. You don't have to stay here. You can move this direction. Because the goal is that you will abandon this way of thinking, that you'll understand that the whole reason, the point of the gospel, the reason that Matthew wrote a story the way he did was that you might be free from this and that you might abandon it, and that you might come put your weight, all of your weight, on Jesus. He invites you to be here, to realize He has the authority to forgive sins, to realize that everything He did on the cross would make it possible for you to have a relationship with Him. I know that that's not easy. I remember, um, I think I've told this story maybe once before. Um, a few years ago, when I was on my sabbatical, I took four and a half days at a monastery, um, did a solitude retreat, and they had this really cool like table of Jesus there, like the Last Supper table, and G- the statue of Jesus was there sitting, and and you know he had a bread in his hand and a cup, like that was Jesus. Well, G- he looked better than that, but this was Jesus at the table, and so he sat kind of in the middle of the table, but it was this really long stone table. It was very cool. So I went down there to meditate one day and just was reading over some scripture and meditating. And I found myself sitting down at the farthest place away from Jesus that I could. And as I sat there, and the longer I sat there, I felt like the thing that got impressed, the question that got impressed upon my heart was, Sean, why did you sit so far from me? Why, why are you way over there? And I just had to admit, because I don't, after all these years, still don't feel worthy to come sit at this table at all. All the things I've done, like, I, how can I even come here? And then Jesus, I just felt like this joy in my heart of Jesus saying, will you stop trying to bring your stuff? Stop trying to earn your way to my table, to be a part of who I am. It's insulting. Don't you know what I've done so that you could be my, the beloved of God? So that you could know what the freedom it is to walk with God as a son. I'll never forget that experience, and it has been a, a spiritual stake in my life. And every time I feel drawn, and I do, I, I, this is a constant temptation. 
I find myself walking back over and saying, Jesus, no. I want my whole life to be based on this. Do you know what freedom there is between these places as you're moving this direction? Do you know what lifts off of you when you don't have to carry the weight, when you don't have to lean with all of your weight on something you're responsible for? And instead, Jesus says, no, no, you just lean your weight on me. Just put all your weight on me. Just show up. I love you. And I'll forgive you. And I will bless you. And you can be fully enjoyed in the Father's presence. You can come confidently into the Father's presence, no longer fearful of anything else. Do you know what freedom there is in that? That's what Jesus offers to every single one of us. That's his greatest invitation. And the reason that Matthew told the story the way he did was so that you could understand. Because you don't have to do this anymore. That you, over the next three or four or five weeks, you can move from here to here. You can be free from that. You can realize that the story of Christmas, the point of the story, is that God sent a Savior to the world to save us from what? From sin. And we all need that. We all need that. So no matter what you think you've done or what you haven't done, You don't have to stay here anymore. You don't have to be here anymore. You can move this direction. You can be free in Christ. And if there's one thing I could really help you understand, no matter where you are, no matter how religious you are, or how not religious you are, if there's one thing, one gift I could give you this Christmas, it would be that you would be surprised by His grace by how much Christ adores you, by no matter what you've done, how much he welcomes you with open arms, that God is not angry with you, his arms are not crossed. Jesus solved all of that when he came, and now his arms are open, and he's welcoming you. So stop putting all your weight and your energy and your soul into this when Jesus welcomes you into his presence. I want you to take a few minutes. Worship team's going to, Play this next song, Reaching for You. I just want you to think for a few minutes, where am I? Where am I? Where have I been leaning my weight on? When have I been leaning into the things that I've done, hoping that God will like me, accept me, love me? When have I been leaning on other things to make my worth come from instead of leaning on what Jesus did so I can approach God confidently? What's it going to take for you to move that way? And so as the worship team sings this next song, I just want you to take that in, to participate in that, to declare it over yourself, to help yourself move this direction. Let's just pray for a moment, prepare ourselves for that, and then we'll sing with the worship team. Lord Jesus, you came for all of us. No matter how religious or not religious we are, you came for every single person here to give us this gift of mercy. You don't desire our works. You desire to give us mercy and grace and to welcome us into your presence to forgive us. So you help us to approach you that way. You help us to abandon our way of thinking this Christmas, to abandon our way of thinking that It's about anything we've done or haven't done. 
to be good enough. And instead, help us to move towards a place where we 100% purely and fully trust you, Jesus, in your forgiveness and in your welcoming power. Help us to let go of our religious acts. Help us to let go of our our past. Help us to stop putting trust in what we're going to do or what we've done. And instead, Lord, help us just to trust in you, to reach out for you, to know that you've been always reaching out for us. In Jesus' name.